Today's episode is brought to you by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, go to saleschema.com slash take charge. And we developed the Amazon flywheel. And those are, if you look at what's on there, selection, customer experience, which you can simplify for this conversation, click to deliver and selection could be first or third party selection and then lowering your cost structure so you can afford to lower prices. Those are all things that we had direct control over. And we knew if we did those well over time, revenue would go up, you know, we could build a profitable business and we'd build shareholder value. And so we had tried, okay, the end of the quarter's coming. We need to hit a revenue number. Let's go do a fire sale or some big marketing campaign. We were really just pulling demand from the future period into the current period. And we were in a deeper hole starting the first day of the next quarter. And we didn't create any durable, lasting customer value either. Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. My new book, Relationship Sales at Scale, is now live on Amazon Kindle, on paperback, as well as hardcover. So to tell you about the book and to give you a little context, in a world of noise, competition, and skepticism, you've probably found that spamming your prospects with undifferentiated pitches, case studies, and sales collateral is a lot like yelling at a brick wall. And on the other hand, trying to go old school and completely personalize every touchpoint 100% is unrealistic and unsustainable because the few people you manage to contact might not even notice or care. And when life gets busy, your sales activity and your team's activity tends to grind to a halt. Your pipeline runs dry and stagnation, feast and famine, all these bad things, they can all happen. So what if the answer is actually combining the new school with the old? And instead of going in cold, how much faster could you grow if you could identify and open doors with the prospects who live within your circles of influence and are already primed to trust and do business with you? So this book, Relationship Sales at Scale, is the new selling philosophy for our age. Bold statement, right? But it is because it marries the timeless power of tribe-based trust with digitally enabled scale so you can open doors tastefully and convert prospects consistently, all without spamming anyone. So it's written by me, Dan Englander. I'm the CEO and founder of this company, Sales Schema. And the book's stories, strategies, and hands-on resources are grounded in thousands of outreach campaigns conducted for clients since 2014. That's among almost 90 clients to secure opportunities between our clients and hard-to-reach prospects, including the leaders of the largest companies on earth. A few things you're going to learn, you're going to learn how to balance personalization and scale to keep your pipeline full and achieve reliable and predictable growth. You're going to learn how to condense five years of networking and do a single week-long campaign so you can batch up warm referrals into specific ideal accounts. You're going to learn how to de-risk conversations. That's the, the emphasis for this with highly skeptical prospects by leveraging strong personal commonalities instead of boring publicly available information like, hey, I saw you tweeted about this thing last week. That doesn't work. And you're going to be able to leverage dozens of actual copy examples, campaign strategies, and online resources so you can launch and close deals in a matter of weeks. So Relationship Sales to Scale will reshape the way you think about sales and business development, whether you are an owner, a dedicated salesperson, or in any growth-focused role. 
This book is a fit for the owners and salespeople in professional service companies and other B2B service and or software areas, assuming you're going after high lifetime value. So this is not for small, medium-sized businesses. So with that said, if you would like to learn more and pick up the book on Kindle or paperback or hardcover, and eventually we'll have it out in audio before too long, you can do that by going to saleschema.com slash rsas. Again, that's saleschema.com slash rsas. So today on the show, I'm very excited to welcome Colin Breyer. As per his official bio, he joined Amazon in 1998, four years after its founding, and spent the next 12 years as part of Amazon's senior leadership team. For two of those years, he was chief of staff to Jeff Bezos and also known as Jeff Shadow, during which he spent each day attending meetings traveling with and discussing business and life with Jeff. Since then, he's worked with and advised a number of other companies, including serving as COO of the e-commerce company Redmart, which was subsequently sold to Alibaba. And very pertinent to our interview, he is the co-author, along with his fellow Amazon colleague, Bill Carr, of the book Working Backwards, and he's co-founder of Working Backwards, LLC, where he coaches large and early stage companies on how to implement the management practices developed at Amazon. So even if perchance your company is not quite as big as Amazon, there still is so much value in what Colin has to teach in this episode. We talked about concepts like single-threaded leadership and what that means. We talked about the bar raiser process for hiring that Amazon implemented. We covered the importance of measuring inputs and not outputs. And we talked about what makes Jeff different and unique and special from somebody that worked alongside him for a number of years. So I know that you're going to learn a ton from this episode episode. And without further ado, please give it up for Colin Breyer. Colin, great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, of course. And it's great to have you on. You know, I've not reading as many business books as I used to. And uh, but I, I did get to working backwards, I guess, in like the last six months or so. And it's great. And it's just sort of built on, you know, some knowledge I'd had from just like different quotes I'd, I, and, and books that I'd read from from Jeff or as if we're on a first name basis. Uh, and particularly like one thing that always stuck with me was like the 70% information rule. And that was something that I've thought about in my business and my life a lot. So it was so great to kind of build on that knowledge with the book that, that you and Bill Carr wrote together. I guess before we get into that, if you don't mind, would you mind just kind of giving you know quick background on yourself and kind of how you approach this? Sure. Yeah. So I'm Colin Breyer and co-author of Working Backwards and Bill Carr, my co-author and I, we worked at Amazon for a combined uh, 27 years at Amazon. So I was there for a little over 12 years, uh, started in uh, 1998. And uh, back then we were just selling books. Uh, corporate area of Amazon was about a hundred people. So we could fit the whole product development team in a cozy conference room, uh, figuring out what to do next and got to really see how Amazon grew from that to selling pretty much everything worldwide and also into a bunch of different businesses like cloud computing and AWS. And so I started out in the product development group, worked uh, two years with Jeff Bezos as his technical advisor or chief of staff. And it was at a really critical time where I was fortunate to be there where we were developing some of these things that are now household names. They were just ideas on the whiteboard like AWS, Prime, Kindle. And so uh, we wanted to talk about how those products were built and developed. But Jeff also put a whole bunch of time and focus and energy on how to instrument the company so it could grow and scale and branch out into different things while remaining uh, nimble and true to its roots, which are you know based on customer obsession. And so Bill and I, we wanted to write a book to get all this out here and, and public dialogue for people to to study to see how Amazon really works from an you know an inside out point of view, with the goal of helping the next generation of business leaders. 
That's great. And there's there's so many jumping off points. And we've been lucky to interview a few Amazonians, but I think nobody that's been there as long as you were, I guess, or rather as early as you were with that perspective. So I guess one one kind of question I have is like, what did it feel like kind of looking back on it in like 1998? Like, did you have any inkling at that point that things would get as big or as successful as, as they did? Or like, what was that like as you have the perspective now on that experience? Well, we knew we were on to something special, but that, no, did we think that Amazon would be in all of these different lines of businesses and expand into cloud computing, which the term didn't even exist back then? No, but we knew that despite what the pundits, industry analysts, financial analysts were saying, we're looking at customer feedback of what we were building and how they loved the service. And we were really listening to customers and trying to build what's next and delight customers day in and day out. So in some aspects, we knew we were onto something special, but you know, it was a rocky road too. It was not a done deal that Amazon would even survive, you know, the dot com bubble and, and bust. And there were lots of other companies, there were well-funded competitors too, that had incredible offerings. So it wasn't all a bed of roses from 1998 to where it was. There were a lot of bumps and we made a lot of mistakes along the way, but we never lost focus on the customer obsession piece of Amazon. Yeah. And that's one thing that I really enjoyed about your book is sometimes you read business books and there's kind of this like moving of goalposts, kind of hindsight bias. Like, of course, the success was inevitable or of course, this failure was inevitable based on these mistakes. And it's really hard to know that. And I think one thing I loved about your book is just it didn't hide the difficulty of this. And it sort of was about balancing a lot of dichotomies, you know, at all times, which is what real life <laughs> is, is about and so on. And so I guess one question I have semi-related to that is it sounds like if I have my dates right, you left it around 2010. So when did you start writing the book or collaborating with Bill and kind of what inspired you to write it when you did? As a quick break, I wanted to let you know about our newest video training, how to take charge of your agency's future revenue. By the end of this training, you're going to learn how we get two to five qualified appointments every week using tasteful and highly targeted email outreach. That might not sound like a lot, but once you understand the outreach napkin math, you're going to learn how this can lead to massive scale for your agency or B2B service company. In addition to that, you're going to learn the six steps for successful outreach campaigns based on everything that we've learned from working with more than 100 agencies since 2014. You're going to get the complete agency outreach tech stack so you understand the right tools for getting the right results. And you're going to see agency to brand email examples and get inspiration from high converting campaigns. So to get this 30-minute training, all you need to do is go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge. Yeah, we started, I guess, around 2017 uh, is is when we started, maybe a little bit, maybe 2018. And so I had left Amazon, and then I actually moved to, to Southeast Asia and spent some time uh, working at a e-commerce startup and as the chief operating officer. So got a chance to really... Um, one, know what is not normal from how Amazon operated because you're in, you're living and breathing that every day and you think all of the things that Amazon does is normal. So it was a good perspective. It would have been hard to write this uh, book at Amazon or, you know, the, the day after we left Amazon. And so really what the genesis of the book, Bill Carr was at a VC conference and he was an entrepreneur in residence at uh, Mavron, which is a VC firm here in the uh, Seattle and in the Bay Area. 
And the topic of Amazon came up and a CEO of a public company, you know, he raised his hand and said, Amazon, I don't get it. How do they do it? How are they into cloud computing? You know, and all these other things. I'm still trying to figure out how to open my stores reliably, you know, one store at a time. And uh, Bill and I, we were talking about that later that evening. And we realized a couple of things. One is that the question was asked all the time. Two is that there weren't really sufficient answers that we were happy with. They were either inaccurate or incomplete. And three, that we knew the answer to that question. And, and you know, it took, we didn't know we were getting into when we started writing the book. It took almost two years to, to write that book. So I think it was good to have a long-term perspective at Amazon, but both Bill and I had spent time in large operating roles outside of Amazon and then got to write the book. That So I think it was a good balance between here's what Amazon does, here's what's different about what Amazon does, and uh, here's what's unique and special, maybe worthy of study. So that, that's how it got started. Um, and we just really wanted to answer the question, how does Amazon do it as definitively as we could? Yeah, and it's it's such a, a rarity or, or pretty much unprecedented from what I can see to have that many big wins. You know, usually you look at these other gargantuan companies and they got one thing really, really right. And Amazon, it's like lightning struck multiple times and everything. So it's obviously, you know, a super interesting question. And to dig into into the process of writing it a little bit more, I wouldn't say it's rare to have, you know, multiple authors on a book, but maybe it's a little bit less common. What was that like? And like, is there anything that you remember that you guys disagreed on or maybe misremembered or how did that come about? If there's any examples there? Well, we were first time author. So we didn't really know what we were, I guess I said, getting into the book. It's structured there. It's really 10 different topics that we talk about. There are 10 different chapters. So that made it a little bit easier to divide and conquer. You know, there's some overarching themes between the chapters, but when we talk about specific processes, um, it made it easy just to really focus on that, set it aside, work on another one. The second thing that we really tried to do was, well, we wrote a PRFAQ. That was the fir- first thing we did when we yeah. said, should we write a book? We wrote a, you went through the Amazon working backwards process. We wrote a press release and an FAQ about what are our goals? Who are the customers? What are we trying to reach and how are we trying to reach them? And the number one goal was to remain friends through this process. So if anything interrupted that, we would have stopped the project. Luckily, we achieved that goal. So having it to be different chapters helped. And at Amazon, we're used to a narrative culture. And so collaborative editing and, you know, someone says, hey, we can make this part better. None of us had any ego involved. We really just wanted to get the story right. And it wasn't a big research project because it really is a first person account. And we were okay if different people were in the same room and had different viewpoints of what happened. We wanted to tell from our perspective because we had lucky enough to have pretty unique perspectives on how these things unfolded at Amazon. So we did a bit of verification with other people to say, was this your recollection? And wasn't an outside looking in research project, which would have been a lot harder um, you know, if we were to study another company and had to try to unfold exactly what happened. I don't know how authors do that and get all that information. That seems like a hard task, but you know, ours was just a different type of book. So I think those things, it made it a little bit easier. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And one thing that's super interesting and the PRFAQ is really valuable. And I think that's one of the things that like almost any company or situation or even like a life situation, you know, that you could implement. But I think what's interesting about it is like sometimes Amazon is associated with being a very hardworking, intensive, chaotic place. 
where there's lots going on. And I'm sure, you know, it was like that maybe even more so in the early days. But the PRFAQ is kind of like asking you to visualize the future in painstaking detail, which is a very deep thinking, creative process. So I guess the question is, what, what was it like in those days making time for that? Like, how did Amazon sort of balance those things and, you know, leave enough time and openness for deep thinking with everything that's going on? It was a challenge. And, you know, once the PRFAQ, the working backwards PRFAQ process got going, you know, started with really just a couple of initiatives, AWS and Kindle were the first two big areas that started using that technique. We just realized that it was a great way to keep the customer involved in, in the room from the, when an idea started to as it was developed, because, you know, a lot of times, a lot of processes take over and the process becomes the thing itself. And we wanted this whole thing anchored around the customer. So what made it, I I think, you know, it's hard work, but it was was actually enjoyable. And you knew you were delivering value for the customer because the PRFAQ, you're having a dialogue with the customer constantly. and, And it's an iterative process. So you write these documents, you review them, but it, you know, the press releases in terms the customer can understand and talking to the customer. And, and then so are a lot of the FAQs where customers get to ask you skeptical questions and you have to figure out what those answers are up front. And so we found that that also saved time. So we were able to vet more ideas and, you know, writing a document, a PRFAQ document and, and critiquing it. That's a lot cheaper than building a service, launching it, seeing what happens and say, oh, we didn't get that quite right. Now we have to support version one, but also build version 1.1 and uh, and pivot a bit like that's expensive. And you can't do many that many experiments. We figured out pretty early on that we could do a lot more experiments per unit time with this PRFAQ process and deliver um, value to customers, have a higher success rate and do it more quickly. Because most companies have more ideas than they can actually capitalize on. And the hard part is picking out what are the right ideas that we should go do and how do we make that initial idea better? Because if you take a look at some of these initial ideas, they evolved quite a lot from using the PRFAQ process. And I think for the better in most cases. Yeah. And it's it's such a great concept. And I think that you know if there's agencies listening just for that one market segment of an example, that's something that you could implement in the process of a new client that you've won or a giant engagement you're about to start or an RFP or something like that. And just sort of doing the work of like all the deep thinking of how this can play out as opposed to just running into something and doing what seems easy at the beginning, but is going to cause major problems down the road, right? So that makes a lot of sense. One thing that I also learned a lot from the book is the hiring process at Amazon. And I know we don't have all the time to dig through all the particulars of that, but would you mind talking about that from a high level and just kind of like how Amazon went about that in the early days? Sure. And this is one of Amazon's first scalable, repeatable processes that we developed and rolled out. And it started in 1999. And it's 2023. The process is largely the same as it was when it rolled out back then. But we were hiring a lot of people. And so we had, in the words of an HR exec, John Vlastelica, new people hiring new people hiring new people all in the span of you know weeks or or months and we realized that some people were good at hiring and they could spot the talent and other people used whatever techniques they brought from their old company to go hire people and we realized we were losing control of one who we were as a company and that the hiring bar was uneven across groups when you had the new people hiring new people hiring new people so we realized you know you put 
for a lot of these processes, we say, well, what does this look like when you put a zero or two, another zero at the end of it? And we realized what we're doing right now is not going to scale and we'll lose control of the company. So we wanted to have a deliberate data-driven hiring process. And we figured out that the biggest correlation of if someone's going to be successful at Amazon was whether they embodied Amazon's core values or leadership principles. So we use behavioral interviewing, which means you look at candidates' past behavior. We mapped it onto the Amazon core values at that time, which evolved into leadership principles a little bit later, but they're roughly the same. And we had a data-driven process to go do that. The other thing that we wanted to do was take out bias from the hiring process And so it's called the bar raiser, but there's a specific role of a bar raiser. And this is something that we learned from Microsoft, actually. They had a a similar interviewing technique where you have someone who doesn't report to the hiring manager, so you get rid of urgency bias. And we made that person a process expert in recruiting, and their job is just to make sure that the hire raises the bar at Amazon. And we gave that bar raiser veto power which seems kind of odd because, you know, you get to a company or a hiring manager and you say, well, I get to hire who I want. Well, you actually don't with the way this process is set up. Mm-hmm. In practice, though, that bar raiser never or rarely exercises the veto power because their job is to help the whole interview panel come to the right decision. So data-driven, getting data to see if the candidate maps to what would make them successful at Amazon, which is does it comport with the Amazon leadership principles, and then removing bias is the way that we figured out we could have consistent hiring processes across the company. And the last quick thing I'll add is we knew we were onto something. We just tried the bar raiser process in the product development group, and it was a test. Other groups then started asking, hey, can we do bar raisers in our group? So that's the sign of a good process where people just realize this is going to make me more effective. I want to start to implement this process in my part of the company. And so it spread that way. And eventually it just became the standard of you have to go through the bar raiser process for any salaried position at Amazon. Yeah, that's great. And I think one thing that jumps out to me is that urgency is like usually the rule, not the exception in hiring and, you know, my entire experience. And can you talk a little bit? I'm not sure if, you know, how much you've implemented something like this with smaller companies or with others, but can you talk a little bit about what that would look like, you know, in a smaller company or how you can like mitigate that urgency bias and the other junk that goes into hiring um, from your experience? Yeah. So when we talk to some smaller companies, one common thing we get is, well, we're not like we used to be a year ago. And so I ask a couple questions. One is I say, can I see your core values or leadership principles? Are they documented? Because, you know, small companies, the founders typically have created magic in a bottle somehow. And when they, if they want to scale it, they have to encode that magic into processes so other people can really understand it and replicate it and repeat it on a consistent basis when founders are not in the room. So if you don't have that, then everyone's trying to do their best, but they're not really aligned on you know what the core values or leadership principles of the company are. So that's a step one for a small organization. And then step two is, you know, I, I ask, well, what deliberate data gathering process do you have to make sure that the person next person you bring on is going to live and embody those leadership principles or are they just going to bring whatever core values or leadership principles from their old organization to 
the company. And if if they don't have a deliberate process to do that, if it's, yeah, we interview people and we look at their skills and if they're a good fit, we hire them. That's a great way to lose control of your company about what made you special. And the functional skills are important, but if you really want to keep what made you special as a small organization and have that grow and scale, you need to define your leadership principles and attract people who embody those leadership principles. So you're as you grow, they're reinforcing the company principles rather than trying to change them. So those would be the two things for small organizations as they're growing. And the, the, the last thing I would mention is urgency bias. We've found time and time again that a lot of organizations underestimate the cost of making a bad hire. Because if you make a hire that just doesn't work out and because oh, we need the body to get this part of the job done or we won't hit our goals, typically... The rest of the team has to do extra work. It's, you know, takes up valuable management time to, to manage if it's a poor performance thing or if they're just not a great fit. And then a couple months later, when that person eventually leaves, a lot of times they leave on their own because they say, this company's not for me. It's not what I signed up for. You're back to where you start. You're even further behind from where you started because you haven't filled that role for six months and you haven't done the work. And now you still have that open position that you need to fill and you start the process over again. So the cost of making a bad hire is you really need to take into account what is that and how do you try to minimize that risk? It doesn't, the bar ratio doesn't get rid of that risk, but we found that it reduces it significantly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a few things to, to kind of dig into there. One thing that I love about the Amazon principles is that, you know, there's this constant balancing act where we're all used to and sick of the corporate, you know, mission or value statements that are so airy as to just be universally applicable in any situation. And then on the other hand, you could get way too narrow and make them technical or tactical, and then they fall apart with any sort of volatility. So I guess one question I have is like, how do you, it sounds like you went from defining it as values, quote unquote, to principles. How do you draw that distinction? And how did that come about? Well, they're synonymous. You know, sometimes we had the set of principles and core values. We just decided to put them in one list and refine them a bit and just call them leadership principles. So it was simpler. If simpler is better. And so some companies call them core values, some call leadership principles, some same thing. But the key is you want those principles to really define how people will act and make decisions when you need to move quickly when you don't have all the information you like and the senior leaders aren't in the room. So you want people to be able to fall back on those principles or values to make consistent decisions across the company. And so that's one of the biggest reasons why we developed them. And then the the next thing you have to do, it's not enough just to write great principles or you have core values. And it's not enough just to memorize them and read the list either, by the way. Um, Next, you need to stitch them into your everyday processes And so you don't have to memorize them. You just act them out every day just by following the processes. Um, The bar raiser process is a great example of how, you know, how does it reinforce Amazon's leadership principle? Well, each interviewer, you're assigned two or three leadership principles to go see how does this, what has this candidate done in the past that his, how have they embodied the, my assigned three leadership principles, me as an interviewer, I've got to go get that data from the candidate in the interview. I have to write my assessment. And then I have to go to debrief meeting with the, the whole interviewing panel. And we talk about here's how this candidate, you know, what does customer obsession mean? And here's what this candidate did or did not do or invent and simplify is another leadership principle. So just by going through the interviewing process, 
you spend two hours um, for each candidate talking about writing about studying the leadership principles. And so the more you do it, the more ingrained you get about, oh, this is what customer obsession or dive deep is and is not. That's an example of weaving uh, leadership principles into an everyday process. That's super interesting. And I think on an individual level, I remember taking, you know, a values assessment. And I'm sure if I took that now, I probably took the last one, you know, five or 10 years ago, my values would be a lot different, you know, now that I'm married and so on and so forth. And all this stuff has changed in my life. Do you think that happens on a company level? And if so, are there any principles that you remember scrapping at Amazon or stuff that fell by the wayside? Well, there've been two revisions. So the first one came out in 2005 when that the 10 leadership principles for Amazon and, you know, the mid 2010. So about 10 years later, it went from 10 to 14. Some of them were merged and like learning be curious was one that was added. And we realized some of them, you know, when you set these principles, you need to make sure they're the right thing. So one example of something I think that was prone to people misuse a lot, disagree and commit about, well, I'm the manager, so you need to disagree. You can disagree, but now you commit with what I say. That's not really the intent of it. It's to, you know, come to a decision. And once, you know, the, once you make the decision, everyone gets behind it. And, you know, so we tweak that a bit. And then the last two that were added, it was right when Andy Jassy took over from Jeff Bezos as the CEO. One was to become Earth's best employer. And so, you know, a lot more emphasis on making Amazon a great place to work. And then the other one was, it starts out that we started out in a garage, but we're not there anymore. So we have a larger responsibility to the rest of the world. Some of the decisions that Amazon makes impact millions of people or businesses. And so how do you ingrain that type of principle into your decision making? So that, that's an example of uh, adding principles as the company evolved and, and changed. So you don't want to change them too much, but yeah, they, they should evolve as the company grows. And there's always a, when we talk about tenants or principles, there's usually a sign that at the bottom, a phrase at the bottom, unless you know of better ones. So, you know, but these things aren't Perfect or not set in stone. And critical thinking is, is, should be a continuous part of what you have as a company. Yeah. And the, the, the things that would stick out to me from, from Jeff, you know, would be things like when he was asked, what do you think of work life balance? And he'd say something to the effect of, you know, that's not in our DNA. And it was just sort of this like transparency and openness about saying, here are the things that we're giving up on in order to do really great work or to do that, you know, to, to sacrifice and so on. So I guess one question is, how, how do you see that playing out now or in the future of Amazon when there's so many more <laughs> competing responsibilities? And do you have to give up on certain things to achieve other principles? And how, how do you kind of balance that, I guess? Well, I've always found that most effective employees are people who do have that balance and because it gives you perspective. But somebody who just thinks 100% of their time about work, they don't often don't have the chance to, to step back. So even when it was crazy, busy time at Amazon, I still had a life outside of Amazon that I, you know, yeah. was, was proud of. I, you know, I started my family back then. And so work-life balance, it, it is important. And the, the thing is that we, we realize and, and, you know, we would tell managers is that you need to take charge of your career and and set your own boundaries because most organizations don't know what they are. And if someone says, I, well, I'm going to work 80 hours a week, 
a lot of times they'll let that person work 80 hours a week. So, you know, a good manager will say, Hey, you need to cut down a bit. Like it's maybe it's okay to do that for one week if it's a, you know, sprint thing, but this is not a sustainable steady state thing. Let's talk about why you're doing this or, you know, how we can uh, change that. So, you know, it wasn't that we had to give up our personal lives just to make it successful. It was hard and, but it was an exhilarating place to work. You had to bring your A game every day. Personally, I I like that. It made me a better person and it made me strive to do things that I didn't actually think I could achieve. I got fulfillment and and extra energy from that. Some people, you know, that's not for them, which, which is fine. Thankfully, lots of companies have different types of cultures and environments, successful companies. So there's more than one way to build a great company. And I think Amazon's been fairly transparent about who they are and who they are not and, you know, attracting the people who who that's for them. That makes a lot of sense. And there's plenty of other examples of organizations that have no trouble recruiting people, but don't make any uh, any illusions about it being easy, you know, Navy SEALs, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that definitely resonates. And with that, I think one thing that is maybe tied to that in some ways is the idea of, of um, what you talk about with metrics, right? The idea of focusing on on inputs instead of outputs. Um, would you mind talking about that a little bit or elaborating? Sure. So outputs are typical things like revenue, your stock price, you know, how much cash the company generates and shareholder value. Those are company goals, but we realized after making several mistakes, you know, trying to move those in the right direction that over the long haul, you can't really directly control those things. And, you know, you think and think of it like a process. So we had to identify, well, what are the things we have control over that if we do these things right, will yield the desired results in the output metrics. So, so looking at both input metrics and output metrics are important. You can't just look at input metrics and you can't just look at output metrics because that mapping is important and you, you often don't know if you got that right. And so what, what we, and then, you know, again, relying on our leadership principles and we created a, a, this, I'll just use the retail business as an example from Jim Collins, good to great. So he came up with the concept of the flywheel. He actually came out to Amazon and we developed the Amazon flywheel. And those are, if you look at what's on there, selection, customer experience, which you can simplify for this conversation click to deliver and selection could be first or third party selection and then lowering your cost structure so you can afford to lower prices. Those are all things that we had direct control over. And we knew if we did those well over time, revenue would go up, you know, we could build a profitable business and we'd build shareholder value. And so we had tried, okay, the end of the quarter's coming. We need to hit a revenue number. Let's go do a fire sale or some big marketing campaign we were really just pulling demand from the future period into the current period. And we were in a deeper hole starting the first day of the next quarter. And we didn't create any durable lasting customer value either because those campaign was done. So we figured that a better place to devote resources consistently, and this comports with long-term thinking, which is embedded in another Amazon leadership principle, over time, the best way to build a lasting, durable, profitable company is to focus on the customer experience, which is in that flywheel, 
and work on those things every day. And that no matter what happens, if I reduce click to deliver time, customers get their goods quicker. If I can lower our cost structure five years from now, customers aren't going to say, yes, Amazon's great, but I wish the prices were a bit higher and it took longer for me to get the stuff. And I don't always want to find what I'm looking for when I go to Amazon. Like that's never going to happen. So you work on those things over time and they pay off. And that's the way you make that transformation to build a big company. It's not, it's usually not one big thing. It's just doing the same thing. And that's a concept of a flywheel. You just keep turning the flywheel a little bit faster and it builds momentum over a period of years, actually. Yeah, that's that's great. And I think kind of connected to that is, is you, it sounds like you've advised a lot of companies since then and you're working with with a variety of companies now. And if you can kind of think of these principles as mental models or as like a, a toolbox filled with tools, are there some that you find to be more universal that you keep going back to? Like, oh yeah, this is like a hammer. Or this is like a screwdriver. Like I use this these more than others and the others were more idiosyncratic to Amazon. Well, the ones we that we really talked about, you know, getting leadership principles, hiring, using narratives, the working backwards process and input metrics, we've found those to be pretty close to universal for small organizations, large organizations, B2B, B2C, nonprofit, government, for-profit. So those are things that really, I think, can work at any organization should they decide to adopt that model. That having been said, some of them are easier to implement than others. For instance, single-threaded leadership, you know, we found out that whenever we had a big initiative that was stalling, we would ask, well, who's the most senior person working on this initiative and nothing but this initiative? And if it didn't have a name, and then we, we knew there was a problem, and then we'd ask, if it did have a name, we'd say, well, does this person have the skills and capability to make this idea a reality? And do they have the resources? Have we given them the resources and leeway to go do that? So we asked those three questions, simple questions, but hard to set up your company in order to deliver a name and a yes and a yes to those three questions for the big things that really matter. Because you have to remove a lot of dependencies. You can have organizational dependencies, technical dependencies to make that happen. That can take months or years, depending on how tangled the company is. That can be a harder one. Um, I think it yields a lot of benefits, but you just have to decide whether you want to do it. Something like bar raisers or implementing the working backwards process, you can say, we're going to try it next week. And it, your your first couple of narratives may not be shining tomes of, of clarity of thought, but that, that's fine. You know, I read the first hundred narratives at Amazon and a lot of them weren't very good, but we were sticking with it because we knew that it was better than what we were doing and we saw the path. And so companies can get, if they want, they can get better at moving, you know, from a slide driven culture to a narrative culture. So I would say that those are universal, but the, the cost of, and time to implement, it may differ between some of these processes. Yeah, that, that makes sense because there's there's so many concerns and dependencies that would be related to who's leading any any one of these projects and who's involved and all that sort of thing. What it seems to do is it forces you to make the hard decision about, is this actually worth it? And if so, we need to make it happen. So that's great. One part that I revisited from your book that I, I really enjoyed is your experience with innovation and you know, your kind of change of thought on the Kindle. Um, would you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah. So with Kindle and, you know, when it started off, first of all, it, 75% of our business was sh shipping physical books, physical CDs, and physical DVDs. 
even a couple of VHS uh, yeah. tapes back then, but mostly DVDs, um, CDs, and and books. We knew that a good chunk of that was going to go away at some point. We didn't know which order it would be in, if you know, which would go first, books, music, or video. And we also didn't know how long that transition would take. But we knew someone was going to disrupt the main part of our business, 75% of our business, and we just made the decision that, well, we're going to try to make it Amazon being to disrupt that business. And so what we did is there, we had a small digital business at the time, but there were, there were ebooks, but they, had, they were tethered to PCs and you actually read them on your, if you had a reader or you could read them on, on your PC, but it wasn't really a great experience, but it was run by the books division at Amazon. And when Jeff decided, well, we want to try to figure out what to do next in digital, companies could do one of two things. You could assign it to, okay, the, the books team to go figure out how to do books. They've already got the relationships with the vendors, you know, even the publishers or movies, it could be the studios. They know the, the customers, it's the same customer who would buy it. And so you could put that on the list and say, well, go figure out how to do that. The problem with that is it'd always be like number eight or 13 on their list because you're asking them to run the business, 75% of the business, and it would never be big enough to get their attention. So Jeff made uh, what I think was a, well, in hindsight, it was a great decision, but it was at some companies it would not stick. He asked Steve Kessel, who was running that business, you know, to say, okay, you're now no longer running 75% of the business. You've got a team of five people and go figure out what to do next in digital. And, and then Bill Carr was one of those people who went over and they were like, well, why can't we just do our day job and go? we can figure this stuff out on our own? And Jeff said, no, I want you to just be f- solely focused on that. So you you give up some things, some some maybe some efficiencies, but that focus we we found really helps. And, the, and Steve also knew Steve Kessel knew what it took to build a billion dollar business, even though he had a team of five to start out with no revenue. So that was the other thing is that you can't just move someone who knows how to run it. They have to know how to run that type of business and know how to get there. So those are two different skills. You know, if you would put someone who just didn't actually do any of the work and said assigned work, run it and you know, okay, you go produce this, that wouldn't work either. So you have to find someone who knows how to get from point A to point B, which is a billion dollar business and knows what it looks like and how to run it. And then, and we also didn't know whether it was going to work. If you look at most companies that made the transition from a brick and mortar type uh, product over to digital, most of them weren't that successful. And we had different degrees of success. You know, Kindle was the first one out, but the movie and music business of Amazon for the first seven, eight years, it wasn't that big, but we decided we wanted to stick with it because we knew we had we had some ideas that, on how to make it better. And, but we also knew that someone's going to take this part of the business. And so again, it's, we want to disrupt ourselves rather than have someone else do it to us. So there are a couple things, you know, things going into play and we did have some failures too. Amazon Unbox, uh, which was, you know, a, a PC based video experience. We learned from that and moved on, but you want these, you have to have a culture of innovation, which means you have to accept that you're going to fail some of the times, you know, cause you can't say we're an innovative company that never fails. The, because they're not pushing the boundary enough. They're probably not as innovative as they could be. So the single-threaded leadership, willingness to experiment and fail, 
And following what the, the customers actually told us what we needed to do in digital versus because in, you know, eventually through the PRFAQ process, eventually through that process told us we needed to be device manufacturers. And that seemed quite silly at the time, to be honest, but well, we're good at building a website and shipping CDs and books and DVDs. Now we have to figure out how to build these electronic devices. But we realized that was the crucial point of innovation and touch point with the customer. And you couldn't build a, a great um, ebook or uh, video or a music experience unless you had control over that and you could innovate there. So that's an example of the customer telling us what we need to do. Then we'd have to make the decision, should we go into this or not? And and we did. So a couple of things that I crammed into there about the digital journey. Yeah. And thanks for that. The thing that jumps out to me was you talking to Jeff about, hey, you're you're not a gadget guy. You've got this ancient Volvo where the sound system doesn't work and and that sort of thing. And I, I guess because it's interesting because that's where there's that dichotomy where there's one principle that might conflict with another where customer experience versus frugality or seemingly at odds, at least at the beginning. And I guess what did it take for you to come around on that? Maybe it wasn't one thing, but how, how did that process happen for you? Well, the frugality part, I think people, one thing that we get is like, oh, you were Amazon, you can get any resource you want. It was so easy. It was hard to get a budget and resources for these things. So the frugality part, the way they played in with digital is we kept these teams and same with AWS, by the way, relatively small. It was an investment we could afford. And if we failed at that, we we were not betting the company. You know, it's like, okay, we tried that and it didn't work. And as, of course, as the company grows, that investment, the absolute dollar amount of that investment can grow too. You know, Firephone was a big failure. It was an expensive failure, but relative to the size Amazon was at that time, it was an experiment that Amazon could should, could and should have tried, but could afford to fail. So did t- talk about the music and video teams stayed very small on the order of let's say dozens of, of people total for about seven years until we figured out what was going to work. And then once we rolled it into Amazon Prime, so Prime Video and Prime Music, that's when it started to take off and with customers. And that's when we started to invest in that the team then went from a couple dozen people all the way, you know, now it's thousands of people. So, but we were frugal. We didn't say we're going to, we need thousands of people to go build this business and let's go uh, invest that. You want to have your investment lockstep with your ability to afford it. And uh, we kept deliberately constrained resources for teams until we knew we were on something. So that's an example of having frugality and invent and simplify may seem like they're at odds, but you know, it, it, it actually worked well in some organizations didn't work that way. I won't name products, but like, okay, we're now going to go into this and we've got this big division and you know, it it doesn't work. And now what do you do with that? So we kind of gated the investment for those things in, in digital and AWS. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like, you know, you worked very closely with Jeff and then since then you've worked with with lots of other leaders and, and that sort of thing. And so much has been written about Jeff and so much so many books have been written about what makes each each individual person special. But I, I'd love to ask you that question. I guess from working with Jeff, like what from your perspective makes him unique and special? Um I was um super fortunate and lucky to have been able to work with him for so long and you know over that number of years. A couple of things stood out. And one is he told me you can't be proud of your gift because they were given to you. You can be proud of things you do and your accomplishments. And so that resonated with me. I think Jeff was an underrated teacher, not from people who spent a lot of time with him, but when you, you know, what people write about him, he would have these incredible insights, but he would then walk the room back and like, well, here's how I got here. 
And more often than not, how he got there was sticking with the leadership principles and not compromising on those things. So, you know, if your leadership principles are who you are and how you make decisions, you can't change those or compromise them. And so if you want to be a long-term focused, innovative, customer-obsessed company, and your e-commerce business isn't growing as well as you want it. And then you say, well, we need to figure out where customers, like, why aren't they going from offline to online? That's how you come up with something like Amazon Prime, which will take years and it did take years to develop, but it turned out to be the biggest growth driver of the retail business for you know a decade plus. Most people would not make that type of decision unless they fell back on those principles. So Jeff was a great teacher. And I think he came up with a great set of principles on how to build a company. And, you know, also when he made a mistake, you know, I can, you know, made a mistake, let's learn from it and move on. So again, if you want to invent, you can't be afraid, you can't be afraid of failure. So some of these process, you know, this is true for these internal processes, you know, I've, I've described them fully formed, but they changed, they didn't start that way. And we we learned as we went along and we modified some of them and some turned out to be quite different in their final form, but you know, they were specific problems we were trying to solve. So those are a couple of things. And you know, Jeff, he when I was working with him, he really loved what he did. And it was infectious and contagious. And he wasn't doing it for fame or it's just like he really wanted to build Earth's most customer-centric company. That's what he said the first time I met him in, what is it, March uh, of 98, and consistently did that, repeated that, and tried to um, do it in different ways for you know all the time I worked with them. So I was very lucky to have had that experience. I learned a lot. It was a bit like drinking from a fire hose, to be quite yeah. honest, because I would learn something new multiple times a day. And I, I knew that I was in some special position. So hopefully wanted to share some of this in working backwards with uh, other people so they could learn from some of these things too. Yeah, that's that's really great and, and, and super interesting and everything. And kind of getting towards the end of our time here, I'd love to just learn more about you know how, how are you typically working with companies now? And uh, what does that process look like? Yeah, so we again wrote the book just to put this management science, uh, new management science out for study. And after the book came out, people started contacting us saying, Hey, can you help us implement some of these processes in, in our organization? And uh, so for the past two years, we have a new company called Working Backwards, where we've been helping organizations learn more about and then implement any one or more of these processes that uh, in their own organization. And uh, it's you know, more like a train the trainer type approach. You know, we teach, we advise, but we're also operators at heart. So the theory is relatively simple, but it takes discipline to to stick with and to you know to work these processes. So we work with companies if they want to adopt the working backwards PRFAQ, for instance. We'll help them and we'll critique the actual PRFAQs that they're writing and reading and get them going and get, you know, get them started. And with the goal is to um, have them do it faster than it took, you know, Amazon to get uh, the, the process up and running. And then we have an executive coaching business too. It's a smaller part, but for people who just want to take advantage of the operating experience that we've had and for executives who are in very large jobs with fast growing companies. And want to know when and, and how to layer and, and process. So those are the the two things uh, we do is um, with working backwards. 
That's great. And um, where can people go to follow what you're up to and get in touch and all that good stuff? Yeah. Um, workingbackwards.com is where we put a lot of our information. So that's that all one word, workingbackwards.com is the best place to go and you know to contact us through there. Awesome. We'll make sure to get that linked up. And Colin, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Great talking with you. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode. Again, today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema helps agencies and B2B service companies build a reliable business development system through tasteful and targeted outreach. To learn more about us and check out our latest video training, again, you can go to saleschema.com slash take charge. Again, that's saleschema.com slash take charge.